0: Welcome to the Michigan Minds podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. Thank you so much for joining Michigan Minds. I'm so excited to have you with us today so that I can learn from you and our audiences can learn from you. So can you please go ahead and introduce yourself to all of us?
1: Yeah, sure. This is exciting. Thanks for bringing me on. So I'm Jenny Radesky. I'm a developmental behavioral pediatrician at University of Michigan Medical School. And that means I did extra training after my pediatrics residency to specialize in kids who develop differently. So autism, ADHD, learning disabilities, trauma, Um, And I really love to apply that lens of who are these different minds and kids uh, to the sort of media that they use. So I study digital media like smartphones, platforms, apps. uh, You know, I haven't gotten into virtual reality yet but I'm sure I will. uh, And all of the new and emerging technologies uh, that have been really around us for the past 10, 20 years and how that relates to children's differences Children's social and emotional development and parenting.
0: This is such a fascinating topic, and I'm really excited to dive in and learn more from you on it. And I think it's something that everyone it finds really relevant. Um, you know, with with smartphones being so common um, and kids utilizing so many different platforms and technologies for their day to day communications. Um, So as an expert in the areas of how parent and child relationships and digital media use interact to shape child social emotional outcomes, can you explain the importance of this area of research and education? Yeah, so
1: when I started my fellowship training uh, in 2011, this is when smartphones were just being adopted um, mostly by early adopters. A lot of the low-income families I was working with didn't really have them yet. Tablets were on the horizon and being adopted more and more by kids. And I realized that with this handheld computer, it really could be carried into all of these spaces, these interpersonal spaces, dinner times, bedtimes, car rides, when otherwise we would have a lot of opportunities for parent-child interaction. And in my clinical work and training, I was seeing how crucial the security of the parent-child relationship is to children's life course outcomes, that when you have a parent who they don't have to be perfect, but they can at least understand you and help you get through tough moments, help you understand yourself, help you learn what you're good at, what's hard for you, and be a problem solver rather than an overreactor. That uh, importance of relationships was really in having this major tension with the fact that we now had just mobile computers around us and pinging for our attention all the time, and so um, that's when I started researching this, and found right away um, a lot of people, either in the public uh, or researchers, being very motivated to to research this topic because we don't want to guilt and shame parents for using technology around kids, but at the same time, we want to preserve some space for the sorts of emotional connection, conversations, um, you know, day to day learning moments that are really irritating sometimes, like it's, it's hard. I have two younger kids, I, I know I've been living this and know how tempting it is to just grab a device and escape from them or hand them a device and say, please just be quiet, I can't handle this anymore. And really trying to find a nuanced balance between uh, trying to figure out where's the line, where's the point where this starts to disrupt our family relationships, um, where can we use it as a helpful tool but also have it have its place, that it doesn't totally overcome, overwhelm our families, and you know, con- control our attention. Um, so one of the things I've really been looking at is how much does the design of technology and how much it's trying to drag our attention in make it harder to parent, you know, because we don't always enjoy and find meaningful that three hours we might have spent on social media. It's it's purposefully pulling us in so it can make more ad revenue or collect more data about us. So. You know instead of instead of asking what parents should be doing better about their tech use, I've really been trying to study what can tech design do better to respect our attention and give us some of this space that we need to really connect with our the little humans we are trying to raise. What I find from interviewing parents in my research is right now there's just this load of stuff you have to wade through, whether it's ads or toxic content that's you know being recommended to you because it's trending. But it's not what you really meaningfully want to connect with and you spend your time on. And so I think that's where I would love for there to be more conversations about now that we're calling tech companies to be more accountable, let's think about the parent's experience and the child's experience as part of that um, so that we we don't always feel like their attention is being pulled in a million different directions.
0: And you were recently featured in an article for the New York Times That centered around how social media apps and in particular instagram can impact the mindset of youth users specifically teenage girls can you expand on that and explain how it impacts self comparison and validation through social media yeah so here's an example
1: where a child's unique stage of development like when you're a tween or teen and you start really caring about how other people think of you and then that can be so augmented through this platform that suddenly allows you to perform all the time for everyone else. And then you're rewarded for performing and it's prompting you and nudging you through its interface. Perform more, look, people loved it, right? So that's what's what's so important to know about design is that with these nudges, that, that might just be a design choice to, to make it the easiest thing when you open that app is to share, is to perform is to ask for more attention, that that may not be in teens or tweens best interest. Some of it is like, it's great to be able to explore music and culture and com- comedy and and other things through the internet and social media. But where it crosses a line is where it's trying to pressure you to do more and more. And so with something like Instagram, that's an image-based social media, right? So it, and like TikTok, like mostly what you're seeing is images. You're not reading as much words the way you do on Twitter um, or Reddit or other places where social exchange happens. And on top of the, that image-based platform, you have filters that are offered to you as like the expected thing you're supposed to do. So many of them are beauty filters. So many of them, and Snapchat has this too, where it's almost this expectation, you have to beautify yourself before you post yourself. And that contrast of like, oh, look, that just made me look like this. And and when I just look at myself through the real filter, like, I'm not happy with that. That sort of contrast, we didn't have that before this social media platform came. You didn't have a mirror that that would do that for you. So that's going to augment some of this um, negative self-body image. And it's not just body. It could be someone's skin. It could be someone's facial features that... You know, the, the interesting thing in that Wall Street Journal um, series of articles is they were talking about how someone with a um, a Latina, um, you know, facial feature, she felt like the filters were making her try to look more white, that they were trying to give her more of a European face shape, right? So it's, it's all these aspects of your external appearance that you can get over-focused on um, and a lot of positive feedback about rather than your inner experience of who am I and what am I good at and what am I willing to fight for? And, you know, what am I, what are the things I'm going to struggle with? The other important thing to take away from that, that New York times piece is, you know, that's a parenting columnist who's really balanced. Like she doesn't want to over panic parents about bringing up teens because panic is not a useful emotion. Being a problem solver Um, You know, and and having a pragmatic view really helps when you're dealing with worries about your kids. And so she made the point that, hey, we always had Britney Spears, you know, or someone else to compare yourself to in our generation. So what is it about the, the scale of sharing on social media that's so different than just a comparison to a picture in a, you know, teenage magazine? what is it about the fact that you're situated within this social network of people you kind of know or you really know, and that can lead to um, you know, a lot of reinforcement of behaviors that might not be in your best interest. So I think uh, what I want parents to take away from this is um, that you really have to have conversations with your kids before giving them these social media tools that may seem like really lighthearted to begin with, but they have a lot to do with who am I and what am I presenting to the world? And how are people reacting to that? And that people may see sexist uh, content. They may see racist content because the algorithms can't filter out everything. They may see stuff that they're just like, I I hate all this toxic interaction between people that in real life wouldn't say those things. So so it's important to be, um, you know, if you're thinking about letting your, kids start a social media account or they already have one there's got to be regular debriefings and open-minded conversations with kids to say like what's going on in there how's it going seen anything that totally stinks seen anything that drives you crazy tell me about it cuz i see it too on my social media feed let's compare notes and i think that will help raise some critical thinking around kids to not just you know get sucked into into rabbit holes that that might make them you know really question themselves
0: I'm curious what your perspective is on the use of social media by teenagers and children during the COVID-19 pandemic, as many of us battled feelings of isolation and loneliness and took to these platforms to connect with others in a virtual and, you know, safer for public health manner. Did that, did the pandemic impact that use and level of social media in those populations? So we know that a lot of people used a
1: lot of social media during the pandemic, but that uh, many kids started accounts just so they could keep in touch with their friends. So we surveyed uh, over 300 parents of elementary school age kids in Michigan. And we found that a third of them said their child started using a social media account sooner than they had expected or planned, but they just really wanted to keep in touch with their friends. So these social media accounts, it really matters whether it's age appropriate or not. If you start using Snapchat or Instagram at an early age, like 9, 10, 11, recent research shows that that's actually linked with worse, more problematic media use, meaning kids are less in control of their media use. They argue with their parents more, they're using it late into the night, it interferes with other things, right? And that's because so many of these regular social media platforms like Snapchat, Instagram, have all these design tricks that want you to keep on longer. You keep scrolling. You get likes and feedback. You get an algorithmic feed that tries to predict what you might look at or click on next. Right? We call those engagement prolonging design techniques. And so you can imagine why a not yet developed brain is using a very engagement prolonging app may develop more problematic media use habits. There are. More age-appropriate versions of keeping in touch with friends, as simple as Skype or FaceTime, where you can respond more in the moment to someone. You read their facial expressions, you take turns and hear each other's stories. Or there's others that have been specifically crafted for younger kids like Pop Jam or Lego Life, where you're just sharing your creations, you're not sharing your image, you're not getting feedback on like how pretty am I, or how buff am I? And That's so important because at that developmental stage, you've got to do a lot of internal identity development. Who am I? What am I good at? And a lot of the social development occurs through dynamic real-time interactions with other kids, sports, um, chess games, board games, telling jokes, getting reactions. This is when kids start to be interested in music and drama, all of this stuff where you have to adjust your behavior in real time to suit what that other person's doing. And that's where social media disjoints it is like, oh, I posted this and five minutes later, I got this. And What do they mean by that? I don't, you know, I, I'm tra- having trouble deciphering whether someone's being a jerk to me or not. Like that's why the parents help in navigating this new social space is really important. I just don't want parents to kind of hand it over and be like, good luck. You know, <laughs> hope this this works to help connect you with
0: your friends. You published an article in October for the American Academy of Pediatrics that highlighted a few different topics regarding social media and research findings that outline how Instagram contributed to teen girls' negative thoughts about their body, as you were just saying, and also thoughts of self-harm after using the app. Can you talk a little bit about those findings? Yeah. The Wall Street Journal investigation used
1: documents that were supplied by the whistleblower, Francis Haugen. And one of those was a slide deck from internal research. And I think what's so hard about me interpreting those findings from a research perspective is I don't know what they did to recruit participants. Like who are these kids? How did they find them? How did they decide which questions to ask them? I mean, I'm glad they were looking to see whether there were any negative impacts um, perceived by the users uh, of their platforms. I think the real takeaway I had, which, which a lot of society did, is the knowledge that, well, you know, Facebook decided to look and investigate this. They had real knowledge that kids were saying this negative stuff about their platform, and they still went on and tried to Promote Instagram, especially to younger, uh, y- younger users, including talking about this Instagram for kids type of model, because they want that user base. They they knew that their main Facebook platform is not someplace that youth are going to hang out. There's a lot of pressure from Snapchat and TikTok, right? So for pediatricians, we felt this huge defensiveness towards kids who still, you know. Are a vulnerable population. That's why we have stricter research guidelines for them at the university. It's why we take such care in educating them and working with them in different ways. So to hear this like multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar company say, hmm, we need this group of kids to be our user base. We need we need growth, like that, that really struck a really negative chord. But I think what about those specific research findings, what it resonated with me is that the the general thinking amongst a lot of the researchers I respect around teens and social media, uh, which is not my specific area of research, but it's that on the whole, social media has a pretty neutral relationship with a lot of kids. Like They find it generally positive, a little bit negative, but they find it manageable. Some find it really positive because they're looking for their people who they can't find, you know, in their communities, and that's, you know, been studied in, um, you know, kids who are questioning their gender identity, kids who have chronic illnesses, um, and you know, can't get as much face-to-face time with others. But there is a subset that has different vulnerabilities, whether it's mental health, body image, you know, thoughts of self-harm where we know social media really does exacerbate that more negatively. So one of the best recommendations I've heard is, couldn't we redesign social media for adults too, so that it's really designing for the people with the most vulnerabilities and we'll all have a better experience that way. So here's an example. So if you have um, sidewalks and you do curb cuts for people who are in wheelchairs, That actually makes it easier for all of us to get around because it's easier to go down a curb cut. And if you were able to design that was helping to protect people who go to social media, but and really want to get the best out of it, but have some vulnerabilities, that's going to make it harder for them. They're going to get more anxious or sad in response to certain types of feedback. They might go down a rabbit hole, you know, of of really negative content if we could shift the design of social media so that the algorithms were not elevating really trending but dangerous self-harm content or eating disorder content. I mean, I started a Snapchat account this past fall just cause I was like, I wonder what it'll feed me. And like the first time I opened it with no history on it at all, the entire page was women's or men's bodies. And I was like, who is driving this train? why is this the default of what shows up first right so we really need to change the defaults so that the stuff that shows up first is more positive or aspirational or just not likely to be it may be great at grabbing your attention but it's not great for your inner sense of self or your you know your your comparison to others um the same thing has happened with the misinformation issues that the wall street journal investigation showed that when Facebook tweaked its algorithm, hoping to connect people more meaningfully through what it would elevate in people's feeds, it actually led to more toxic uh, content being elevated and shown more. And that has a huge impact on people's thinking during the pandemic, like in terms of the, the huge amounts of arguments and polarizations, polarization about things that we see as simple public health common sense measures like masks. You know, So I'm really hopeful that with all of the uh, hearings that have been held uh, about social media's impact on society and families, that we will get a little bit of action, both in regulation, but also the companies have done some self-regulation to really change things, like change the default settings of who can contact a teen out of the blue. Um, on Instagram, for example, that change happened this summer in response to some new regulations in the United Kingdom. So great, like we know they can make changes and make it safer for, for kids to be entering these spaces.
0: Can you share some strategies that parents can keep in mind when advising their children on digital and social media use?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is to think more of yourself as a mentor or like a, someone to guide and just be there to, to have healthy conversations with kids rather than having to be, you know, a policeman um, or woman about this, because we are all figuring out and navigating these rapidly changing digital ecosystems together. You know, we grew up in an era, I grew up in an era that when like call waiting was still novel and like, people still had answering machines and the internet came on board. Like when I was in a band in college and like we had our MySpace page, like those are all things that we had fun discovering. And now we're watching our kids grow up with so much more access to so much more stuff. Easy, frictionless access, you know, like my research has shown that you can download like so many different inappropriate things from the app store or find inappropriate stuff on YouTube so easily um so right now my guidance to parents is it's a bit of a wild west out there you probably see it in your own social media feeds so try to be a mentor to help your child build their own guardrails around what they're willing to click on who they follow watch with them or play with them so you understand their digital world and if you see something that seems inappropriate it's racist or sexist or it's like you know, just overly commercialized, or it just seems like cheap gimmicks, it doesn't feel like real quality time, then talk about it with kids. Don't, don't criticize and be like, don't watch this garbage and shut it off. You have to have a conversation and be like, huh, like, why do you think this YouTuber decided to post this? Like that, I don't, I don't love that depiction of this woman because like, you know, Uh, I I don't think women are weak. I think, you know, I'm a doctor. I work really, you know, hard to do things. So if you can tie it to your own lived experience and your child's lived experience, you may have a more fruitful conversation rather than just doing these grand, this is terrible, turn it off sort of conversations. Also ask more questions than, than give opinions, right? Because kids have their own opinions and especially starting in elementary school and definitely into the teenage years, they're thinking a lot about this stuff. So Ask some questions, open-ended ones, like, huh, what do you think about that? Or I heard about this going on in the news. What do you think? Where what is the creepiest thing you've seen online lately? What is the coolest and most inspirational thing you've seen online? You know, who are the YouTubers who you think have gone downhill since they got popular, right? Because there's all of this self-selling that's occurring online that you want to help kids learn to be kind of critical about who is just you know, trying to brand themselves and show off and who's really an authentic, helpful person. Uh, You know, like I said, try to use media together. So you have a window into their world, but they maybe also have a window into yours and you can use it in, in a way that sparks new conversations. There's tons of great movies that help us figure out what's going on in our world. And then also the last thing I'd say is like teaching your kids that media can't control us. Like we really have to have some boundaries around it. There's going to be times when parents included have to just put their phones away, have to, and especially, so driving is number one, right? Like not role modeling that you can just pick up and text at any time. And then figuring out what is the most important to your family. Is it meals? Is it, I mean, bedtimes is one we really want to preserve because phones can definitely keep us up. They're just exciting. And the blue light from them is also not so great for sleep. And then um, having a plan. The final thing is just be intentional, not reactive about media use so that you've talked it out with your kids, you've gotten their opinions, you kind of make a plan for when parents put their laptops away and when kids put their phones away um, and you keep checking in. It can't just be a one-time plan and then expect it to suddenly be successful. Like that's parenting. You keep having to check in and adapt and adjust based on how well you did and what's working and what's not.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Redetsky. Is there anything else that you want to add or share that we didn't cover, or are there any other takeaways that you want to make sure that everyone remembers?
1: You know, I think that like we were just talking about being an informed parent right now means you're going to have to do some research about what are your kids using? You know, what, what types of games do they like the best? Does it allow communication with others online? Like what are the filters and privacy settings you can put on there. I know it's work. You know, it's like we all have to like read a whole new parenting textbook. Um, But there's tons of websites out there like Common Sense Media, like, you know, parent sections of like Roblox, like they have info for us to help us know how to navigate this with kids. Um, You know, there's there's newsletters like the Screenagers movie that sends out tips for how to talk to your kids about this. So if you can have a few of those tools to keep you informed, I think you'll feel like it's easier to start these conversations with kids and to convince your kids that some limits are needed rather than coming in as totally unsure of what your child is experiencing and trying to lay down the law. Um, you know, So that's, that's my best um, suggestion, especially coming out of this pandemic, right? We all have a much clearer idea of what media like really helped during these past two years, and which media felt like a waste of time or a toxic swamp. So let's use some of that insight to plan a healthier relationship with media moving
0: forward. Thank you so much for taking the time to share all of this incredibly important information with us. I know that I've learned a lot and I really appreciate you sharing all of your research expertise, personal experiences, and of course, the information that you've gathered over these last few years as well as throughout your career. So thank you again for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.